I was engaged in this conversation, this dialogue with this gentleman um, not that long ago. And with, within the dialogue, and I'm sure you've all had one of these conversations, but he's a very passionate believer in Yeshua. And uh, he knew my position, as you would going back to last week, he knew my perspective on the law. That's completely valid. Well, he attempted to challenge me on that, which is, which is great. I have no problem. You want to go to the Word? Let's go to the Word. But it was interesting how he moved to challenge the validity of the law. He did it through two manners. In other words, he grabbed two specific sources from the Word. Interestingly enough, they're only five chapters apart from each other. The first one that he went to is Acts 15, Jerusalem Council. For those of you who have been with me, I've talked extensively about that. I've addressed uh, the, the council. We're actually going to be looking a little bit at that next week. But the other one that he brought to the table, and he really kept spinning the wheels on this one, was known as Peter's vision. And how many of you know what I'm talking about, Peter's vision? And this, uh, this was a reminder. He's telling me, see, Daniel, uh, he goes, what you don't understand is Peter's vision is clear evidence. The law has been done away with. The law said specific animals were unclean. You couldn't eat them. But now, as we go to the New Testament, we find they're commanded. We're actually commanded to eat them. Don't you see? This is clear evidence that the law is no longer valid for Christian believers and the Messiah Yeshua, and even for Jews. Jews are supposed to be eating uh, pig and horse and cat, apparently, according to this perspective, because, uh, you know, and I believe he's, in the integrity of his heart, he's, he's moving on this. Uh, I don't believe he's, he's attempting and trying to be deceived. But he's even saying that, you know, Jews are to embrace the new covenant as well. Peter was a Jew. And didn't the Lord command him to eat unclean animals? And so he used this vision. All the while, he's, he's going through this, and the back of my head is spinning 100 miles an hour. And I'm going, I was just thinking about this weeks ago. I am supposed to do a teaching on this. This is fabulous. Now, this is a good reminder. I need to do this formally. I need to present this formally. And then, can't make this stuff up. Just two weeks ago, I'm sitting at my desk. I'm literally sitting at my desk. And I'm thinking, it dawned on me like a bulb. I was like, oh, I got I to gotta work in this summer. I have to work in Peter's vision. I forgot I wanted to do that. I just keep forgetting. While I'm saying that, I get the ding on my, I get an email. I get the, the ding goes off, so I look at that. And it's an email from a woman talking about Peter's vision. And so there just comes a time where the Lord's just grabbing at you, keep giving you a sign, I'm thick-headed, keeps giving you signs. Well, now, here we are. There is a reason I am giving this. I don't know who it's for, but we are supposed to cover this information today. So what we're going to do this week and next week, we are going to look at the food laws. Does God even care what we eat? Those who confess Yeshua as the Messiah, does he even care what we put in our bodies? Or is part of the new covenant and the reality of the new covenant, turning away from the law, looking away from the law, and now grabbing things that were once deemed abominable and grabbing them as though they are pure and holy. So this is what we're going to do today. We're going to look at Peter's vision, and we're just going to break right into it. In Acts chapter 10, verse 1, this is what we read. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion. I want to make a note, very important. You'll see this. This will play out. Cornelius was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. Again, going back to the reality, there's only two groups of people, scripturally speaking, biblically speaking. 
you have Israel, you have Jews, and you have all those who are not Jews. It's real simple. You have circumcised and you have uncircumcised. Very important to note, Cornelius is not circumcised. He's not part of the circumcision. He is a Gentile. He's part of the uncircumcision. So we read uh, Cornelius the Centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment, a devout man, one who feared God with all his household, who gave, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. Another very, very important point to pick up on as we get into this, to get closer and closer to this vision that's going to unfold. Though Cornelius, he is not of the circumcision, when you read his character, the descriptors that are given in the character of who this man is, everything about his character tells me he's Jewish. I mean, look at these things. He's devout. He feared God. And it's referencing the God of Israel. Who fears the God of Israel? God's people, the Jewish people. He gives alms generously. What is Torah command? Torah commands that you give to the poor, that you support the poor, that you plead for the widow, right? And then he prayed to God always. Well, who does that? Jews. The people of the living God. The children of Israel. Everything about this man's character screams Jew. It's awesome. Now moving on to verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Verse 5. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner. A tanner is just someone who works with leather. Whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. I want to repeat that. He will tell you. He, being Peter, is going to tell you what you must do. You want to understand this vision. Do not blow by this statement. Let this statement sink down into your heart. Put this all in a context. Cornelius is talking to an angel of the Lord. One would think that if the Lord had a message for Cornelius, this is the time to hear it. The angel should be speaking it to him. That's mind-blowing, but what happened? The angel says, Peter has a word for you. Well, do you really think that it's going to be Peter's words or the Lord's words? And what I'm telling you, again, you want to understand this vision, you need to understand what is said right here. Why is the Lord doing it this way? And I'm going to cut to the chase. The Lord wants to bring the Jew and Gentile together. That is what is at stake. That is what is happening right here. There's a reason the angel just said, could the angel not tell him what the Lord wanted to say? Of course he could. It's not how the Lord wanted to do it. He wanted to do something extraordinary. Through one of his choicest men, Peter was on the innermost sanctum of his flock. You just read the New Testament, this is made evident. And he wants Peter to go to a Gentile. Unbelievable. And when the angel who spoke to Cornelius had departed, Cornelius called two um, of his household servants. Okay, let's do the math here. He calls two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. How many men? Three men. 
Okay, so we're given two very, very critical pieces of information and truly bringing away understanding from this vision. Okay, number one, the angel did not deliver the message. Peter is to deliver the message. A Jew and Gentile are to come together. The second thing, and this is critical about this and understanding the vision, Cornelius is to send three men, specifically three men. And this will come into play. Now, moving on to verse 8. When he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour, around noon. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat, but while they made ready, their people making food ready, he fell into a trance. Now that sounds like a good situation. If you're hungry, hey, you guys go make the food, I'm going to go pray. This, is, this works out pretty good for everybody. But notice here, Peter is, he's famished. And we're told he falls into this trance. Now this is what happens in verse 11. And he saw heaven open, an object like a great sheet, bound at four corners, descending to him, and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. Now, you're going to see as we continue... All these animals that Peter's looking at in this great sheet, this, this compilation of animals, they are all, as Torah would specify, they are all unclean. They are deemed unclean. They are not clean animals. They're not animals that Peter can eat. Now, this is going to come into play. This is going to help you appreciate, really, the gravity of what is said next. Because this is what we're told in verse 13. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Lord comes out and says, There's animals that he's looking at that are in these sheets. Arise, Peter, go kill and eat them. And what does Peter do? He does what I expect a typical God fearing Jew to do. God forbid he refuses. Nothing unclean has ever come into his mouth. And if you look at how the statement, how Peter orchestrates this statement, he does it in such a careful manner to include the entirety of Torah's instruction regarding food laws. In other words, what am I getting at? Well, let me highlight this. He says, I've never eaten anything common. That word common in the Greek is koinos. Koinos actually means defiled. In other words, what I'm telling you, Peter's getting at, it could be he's referring to clean food that has been defiled. So we could talk about, you know, anything with a split hoof and choose the cud, a cow. Cow is kosher. You can eat cow. Because it has the split hoof, it chews the cud. However, if that cow is strangled to death, you're not to eat the meat with the blood. That cow has now become defiled. You would be eating defiled meat. It's very important you pick up on what is being articulated here because this first statement, this first word here, I've never eaten anything koinos. It's referring to clean animals that have in fact been defiled. And then he goes on to say, or unclean. And that word unclean is a karthatos in the Greek. And it means just what it says, unclean. In other words, you, when you go to the Torah, 
the, the two prevalent food chapters, they're known as the food chapters, Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14. Deuteronomy 14 is just merely a repetition of Leviticus 11. You go read Leviticus 11, you start going down, and over and over again, these are unclean to you, these are unclean, you shall not eat these, for it is unclean to you. Over and over you find that. Well, in the Hebrew, that word unclean is me. But when you go to the Greek, the natural translation of it, this is interesting, you go to the Greek Septuagint, and how the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, every time you go to see that word unclean, they translate it as, oh, interesting, akarthatos. That's the very word that is used here in the New Testament. And so here, literally, Peter compiles the entirety of the food laws, even clean animals, but clean animals that have been defiled, he's never eaten. Not one. He's never partooken of their blood. He's never ate animals that have been sacrificed to idols. It's forbidden according to Torah. Nor has he eaten anything that is unclean. Bacon has never touched his lips. Shrimp has never touched his lips. Shrimp wrapped in bacon has never touched his lips. <laughs> Moving. So here we have the premise. Peter refuses. He refuses to eat the unclean animals. He's never done so. Moving to verse 15. And a voice spoke to him again the second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times. How many times? Three. How many times was this vision happened? Three times. Very, very significant. And the object was taken up to heaven again. Now, as we look at this vision, we have to ask, oh my, did God just change his mind in regard to all those foods we read about in Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14, and even scattered about with various laws in Exodus as well? Did he change his mind about what he deems abominable in Torah? Are they now clean? Can, should, we, should we be eating? I mean, didn't he command Peter to eat it? He commanded them, him to eat this unclean food. Let me take this a step further. As we continue, we're going to go to verse 17. We're going to see exactly what's going on here. Verse 17, now while Peter wondered within himself what the vision which he had seen meant, I want to stop here. Pay very close attention. The Lord commands him, you're to eat these unclean animals. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter comes to out of the vision. Does he rise and go out and make a ham sandwich? No. Look at what it says. He wondered within himself what the vision he had seen meant. He comes to, and he knows it's not to be taken literally. He knows something is up here. This is why he's wondering. He's perplexed. He's confounded. What in the world did this mean? Peter, being a Jew, is familiar with something. It's scattered from Genesis to Revelation that every time the Lord goes to give somebody a dream or a vision, guess what? He uses metaphors. Right? Joseph's dream... Right? Uh, Pharaoh's dream that he had, and Joseph interprets it. We're talking stocks of wheat. We're talking cows. Was that literally what it had? No. These seven cows represented seven years of famine. Seven years of plenty for the good cows. When, when, he, when he's talking about the sun and the moon and the stars all bowing down before him, he has this dream. He's excited. He wants to share it with his brethren. Are, is that literal? Did the sun, moon, and stars literally bow down to him? I mean, we could go on and on. One thing that is consistent 
This is consistent. It's not contradictory. It's consistent. Over and over again, when the Lord gives dreams and visions, he does so through metaphors. In fact, when Yeshua comes into the New Testament, he starts teaching. How does Yeshua teach? He taught in dark sayings. He taught in parables. He was using objects and metaphors to bring a spiritual reality, to bring it to the table. So this is, this is consistent. And Peter knows this. He's a Jew. So he wakes out of this vision. He's confused. What does this mean? He's trying to figure it out. And behold, as he's doing this, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate, moving on to verse 18. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, he's literally in the midst of trying to figure this out, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Now I ask you, he just comes out of this vision, how many times did it happen? It happened three times. Immediately he comes to, he's thinking about the... Wow, this is either a really, really peculiar coincidence that three men show up after this has happened three times, or maybe the Lord has revealed something to him on a much, much bigger level. Now, moving on to verse 20. Listen to what the Spirit tells Peter. He's out of the vision now. Okay? Arise, Anastas, in the Greek. Let's go back to the vision. What did the Lord command Peter to do? Arise, Peter. Arise, Peter. Kill and eat. When he comes to, what does the Spirit tell him? After three men show up at his door, the very same thing, he says, arise. Can't make this up. Arise. Therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? Moving on to verse 22. And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Moving on to verse 23. Then he invited them in. Let me stop here, because I'm going to tell you right now, Peter, being a Jew, would have never, on this green earth, done what we are reading right now with a Gentile, with the uncircumcised. Would not have happened. He is a Jew, unless he had this vision, unless the Spirit spoke to him. That is the only way what we are reading in verse 23 could possibly happen. It's the only way. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them. And some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And the following day, they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. This is interesting, right? Cornelius, here's the deal. You have an encounter with God, this is what you do. You go tell everybody. You tell the people you care about. You tell your relatives. You tell your best friends. Get in here. Peter is coming. He has a message for us. This is what you do. Moving on to verse 25. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. I mean, this was an awesome thing for Cornelius. You really need to keep it in context to the point where this expectation of Peter just coming, he drops to offer him proskuneo, 
But Peter, as we're going to see, he refuses that, being a true man of God. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. It's almost like the writer here is telling you that Peter's almost astonished. You know, kind of takes him by surprise where he walks in and there's a massive group of people. And they're there for one reason. They're there for him to hear the words of the Lord. The word of the Lord has been given to Peter and they're there to hear that. Now moving on to verse 28. Then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go to one of another nation? Now listen to what Peter says next because if you want to understand, remember Acts 10, 28. Remember Acts 10, 28. Do you want to understand what Peter's vision is? Because he's going to give you the explanation from his own mouth. This is the interpretation of Peter's vision. He goes on and says, But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. It's the interpretation. Peter has full knowledge of what the vision meant. And notice he doesn't say, God has shown me that I should not call any pig or horse or cat or dog unclean common. I'm not to do that. He doesn't say that. You won't find that. Doesn't exist in any translation. Doesn't exist anywhere as you go further up throughout Acts. Doesn't exist. The only thing he says that he is not to call any man common or unclean. The vision had nothing to do with literal food. It was all about the fact that through the sacrifice of Yeshua, through faith in Yeshua, those who are uncircumcised can now be saved. Those who are uncircumcised can now be considered clean. They can be considered as though they were circumcised. Now, as we move on in our story, as we drop down a couple verses, we're going to see something happen in this meeting between Peter and Cornelius that is extremely noteworthy. And I say that because what happens between Peter and Cornelius is actually, quite literally, a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. It is awesome. So what I want to do is we're going to drop down to verse 33 and here Cornelius, is, he's given his side of the story and, uh, and how he's seen an angel and how he's supposed to call for Peter, at which point we read the following. So I sent to you immediately and you have done well to come. Now therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Peter, again, in case you missed it, that he's not supposed to call any man common or unclean, we're given it a second time. Peter reiterates, In every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness, that person is going to be accepted. And he's speaking specifically of Gentiles scattered throughout all the various nations. Now you think about this, what Peter just said here, fears him and works righteousness. For those of you who know, and you've stuck, gone through what I've called the structure of the faith, we see the structure of the faith, yet once again Peter lays it out. What is the whole matter? You go to Ecclesiastes 12, right? The whole matter is fear God, keep his commandments. For this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing. This is exactly what Peter brings to the table. What is man's all? It's this. We're to fear God and we're to work righteousness or keep his commandments. Now moving on to verse 36. 
The word which God sent to the children of Israel preaching peace through Yeshua Mashiach. He is Lord of all. That word you know which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. And so essentially, what is going on here? Peter, from, from verse 34 to 43, I believe it is, and we're not going to cover all that. Peter goes on to explain the pure milk of the word. He goes on to explain the gospel of Yeshua. You want to read one of the best commentaries, the best articulations of the gospel, read 34 through 43. Amazing. You want to go do ministry, you want to evangelize, this is your passage. This is where you want to go. It is powerful. And what we are going to see, what we are literally going to witness, is you are going to witness the power of the gospel. The power of the name of Yeshua and those who confess him. You're going to see what happens. This is awesome. So Peter, he's declaring Yeshua is the Messiah. He has died for their sins. He's resurrected, and there's life in him. He's declaring this, and as we come to verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. You think about that. Peter is declaring to them the gospel, the truth of Yeshua the Messiah, and the Ruach HaKodesh is falling down upon the uncircumcised, the Gentiles. And those, we continue on in verse 45, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Here you have Jews literally witnessing something they could have never fathomed, something they never saw. They were bewildered. They're totally dumbfounded that they're watching the Ruach HaKodesh fall upon the Gentiles in the very same way that it fell upon them when they believed in Yeshua. You really need to put this into context that to a Jew in the first century, they're going to be left scratching their head trying to figure this out. They're amazed because this was not their expectation. Their expectation was for them to get the anointing of the Ruach and it was promised as according to the prophets but it stopped there. They're just focused on that. Where's the Messiah? Where's our coming king? Never considering the fact that this would, the mercy of the living God would extend beyond that border. Praise the Lord, right? Mercy and grace of the Lord. Now, I want to point out here that what the Gentiles just experienced here, what Peter and his Jewish companions just witnessed here, it is a direct fulfillment of a particular prophecy found in Isaiah. Now, there are multiple ones that apply to this, but there is one in particular that corresponds to Peter's vision. And when you bring all these components together, they all converge to the finest point. You take Peter's vision, you take what we just saw happening with the anointing of the Gentiles, and then you bring Isaiah's prophecy, they all converge to the finest point. Let me take you back to the prophet Isaiah and show you something that the Lord prophesied would happen. In Isaiah 43, verse 18, Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. The prophecy, it begins here. Do not consider the things old. I'm going to do something new. I'm going to tell you what we just read in Acts. You just ask any of the Jews that were there witnessing it, and you make no mistake. The anointing of the Holy Spirit falling upon the Gentiles, you better believe it, it is absolutely a new thing. 
It's a brand new thing. Gentiles pouring into Israel to become one with her. The Jew and Gentile becoming one. I'm telling you, this is a new thing. And look at what it says. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? In other words, guess what? My people, my Jewish people, you will know it. You will see it. We see this very thing unfolding in Acts 10. They saw it with their own eyes, and they were astonished, right? Now it goes on. I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Notice anything peculiar about this statement? With all due respect, roads being in the middle of a wilderness is abnormal. There's nothing normal about that. There's nothing normal about a river, rivers of waters going through a desert, What makes a desert a desert is that it's desert. It's dry. It's uninhabited. It's dead. And here we're told that the Lord is going to do something new, something incredible. He's going to do something abnormal. It's not normal. Bringing rivers and life to the desert. Now he goes on to say, and pay very, very close attention. The beast of the field will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. What did he just say? The jackals and the ostriches. Isn't that amazing? Because the very thing that as Peter peered into the sheet to see would have been these animals. Unclean animals. And here's a prophecy about the unclean animals. It's just, again, I'm pointing this out. This is consistent. God, the, what we saw in Acts chapter, or Acts chapter 10, Peter's vision, is consistent to what was prophesied earlier. To the prophet Isaiah. The unclean animals would be coming to him. They would honor him, the God of Israel. The jackals and ostriches, they're unclean animals. That's what they are. Why? Because we go on to why they're going to honor him. Because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul actually in Romans makes an interesting statement regarding the Gentiles who come into the faith And he quotes the prophets and said, those who are not my people, they shall become my people. This is what is happening. And here he's talking about jackals and ostriches, the Gentiles, a direct reference to the Gentiles, and the fact that he would be giving drink to them, bringing water to a dead place. And what does Paul say in Ephesians? To the Ephesians, to Gentiles, he said, you were without hope and without God. Call that a desert. It's as desert as it gets, it's as dead as it gets. But now, through the Messiah Yeshua, through faith in Him, now He is pouring out drink. He pours out His Holy Spirit upon them all. I want to point out something over and over again. We find this very language that is used here, where we see waters in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, over and over. We find the exact same terminology being used in the New Testament in regard to the Holy Spirit. Well, what a coincidence, because that's the very thing that fell upon these Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. Let me give you an example of this. John seven thirty eight. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Mayim Chaim. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit. Isn't that fascinating? 
So when we read this passage, the beast of the field will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, the Gentiles, the unclean, because I give waters in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. Now we completely understand what Peter saw in his vision. And not just that, but we see the vision come to fruition. The prophecy came to life. All this to say, I'm telling you, Peter's vision had nothing to do with changing biblical dietary restrictions as specified in the Torah. It had everything to do with Gentiles receiving eternal life through faith in the Messiah Yeshua. Now, I can tell you for some people, this can be really, really eye-opening. The fact that Peter's vision had nothing to do with food. It was all about the Gentiles being grafted into the faith. However, I'll tell you what I have experienced. I've even talked to people that will even say, you know what? You're right. You're right. Peter's vision, after discovering this, Peter's vision has nothing to do with that, but this is all about Gentiles. But then to follow that up, but it doesn't matter. Okay, why doesn't it matter? Well, because Jesus declared all foods clean. Yeah, Mark 7. Jesus declared all foods clean and Mark 7, so it really doesn't matter. I want to point out a couple things. I want, to, I want to analyze the statement because it's very important you know how to handle it. And it's very important for those that have not come across this or even thought about it, that you know it. Number one, to make that statement that it doesn't matter what happened in Acts because Jesus declared all foods clean, I do want to point out, and again, not to confuse you with the facts, but I want to point out this. If, in fact, Yeshua declared all foods clean in his ministry, he died, he rose again, his disciples were all there, they learned from their master, from their rabbi, why is it post-resurrection, going over all the way to Acts 10, when the Lord commands him to rise, Peter, kill, and eat unclean animals, he refuses? If, in fact, Yeshua declared all foods clean, Peter would never have refused. He would have adhered to his rabbi, Rabbi Yeshua. He would have said, no, 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 oh, no problem. You got, you got lobster? I like lobster. Crab legs? Yummy dipped in butter, right? This is what the flesh tells you, right? But the Spirit speaks differently. The Spirit says, that is abominable. And Yeshua, he never understood, Peter never understood Yeshua to declare all foods clean, such as, as pig and, uh, you know, shrimp and all that other stuff. But let me dig into this a lot further so that you understand this. And I want to preface this because this is important, and I have talked about this subject with professors, I've talked about it with pastors, and I've talked about it with lay people, with sheep, okay, on every level. And what you will find, this is not a coincidence, when Yeshua says, declared all foods clean, did you know that the very thing that is recorded in Mark 7 is also recorded in Matthew 15? But they never take you to Matthew 15. They will always take you to Mark 7. And I'm going to show you why. And as we go through this, even if Mark 7, and I don't have a problem going with Mark 7. Mark 7's fine. But I'm going to show you why they focus on this and they totally ignore Matthew 15. It's interesting. Mark 7, verse 1. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Yerushalayim. Now when they saw some of his disciples, I want to stop here because you need to identify the characters that are involved here. It is the Pharisees, it is the scribes, the leaders of the Jewish people. And they're looking on at who? They're looking on at the disciples of Yeshua. 
When they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, unwashed hands. I want to stop right here. Because we need to start identifying aspects of the story that affect the interpretation of the story. Number one, notice that they saw some of his disciples eat bread. Not meat of any kind. Not fish, not pig, not horse, not cat, not dog. None of it. There's no meat mentioned anywhere here. What is at the helm here is bread. Lechem. That is what they're eating. This is what they see. But then it goes on to say they saw them eat bread with defiled. Interesting, that is the very same Greek word, koinos. It's used in the very same context. Remember I told you it's defiled. They eat it with defiled, that is, unwashed hands. If you want to understand Mark 7, you better stop right here and analyze the context. Analyze the charge. Think of this kind of as a court case. Where you have the Pharisees, they've come out, they're the prosecuting attorneys. And then you have the defending attorney is Yeshua. And the people being called into question, being called into judgment are Yeshua's disciples. Identify the charge. What is the charge? Is the charge is your disciples are eating unclean food. Your disciples are eating pig. They're partaking in shrimp. That is not the charge. The charge is they're eating bread with unwashed hands. That is the charge. So analyze the structure of this passage. Analyze the charge because this will give you the correct interpretation as we go. So they ate bread with defiled, that is, unwashed hands. They found fault. Uh, here's what's interesting. The prosecuting attorneys in this case, they're condemning them. But according to what law? According to what law? For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. And you better make note of this, because the condemnation and the prosecution is resting on a law that is not the commandments of God, it's not the Torah. The judgment that is coming out, it stems from a different law, not the Torah. It stems from what you would call traditional Judaism or Orthodox Judaism today. I mean, even today, I'm going to tell you right now, and you want to see the problem? So much of the misinterpretation can be found, the root of it can be found by the church leaving its Jewish roots. The Jewish roots of the faith. You know, people get into the habit of saying this, but what does it mean? I'm going to give you an example of literally what that means. You do not appreciate the historical context of what is going on here. You do not appreciate how powerful, how influential the traditions of the rabbis were. How elevated they were to the point that they were brought even higher than the commandments of God. And if you do not have that historical backdrop, that context, you're going to completely distort and pervert and twist the passage. Twelve ways from Sunday. But here, I mean, and as I was going to say, even to this day, Orthodox Judaism, they still practice the washing of hands. They, they, we, we, in fact, if you've ever spent a Pesach with us, uh, we do the traditional uh, hand washing, where you, you pour water over your left hand, then you pour it over your right, then you're supposed to pour it over your left hand again, and then you pour it over your right. 
and you dry your hands, and, 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 and it's completed, and you, you, you can fulfill this by saying the blessing, Baruch Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctified us by your commandments and commanded us about the washing of hands. But then you ask, commanded us about the washing of hands, who commanded? You will not find that anywhere in the Torah. It is a rabbinical, what is known as takanot. It's rabbinical enactments. It's the command of the rabbis. It is the command, is the traditions of the elders. And if you, you start to study Orthodox Judaism, uh, you realize that the rabbis, in, in some instances, they really do believe that they have the authority to impose the power and commandments even above the commandments of God. And we're going to see this play out here. So this is, without this backdrop, you're completely missing the context and literally this, this what's being uh, engaged in here. So here you have the holding the tradition of the elders. Moving to verse 4. When they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees, verse 5, and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? If you miss the charge the first time, this is the beauty. It's reiterated a second time. If you missed it the first time, again, what is the charge? Is it that they're eating pig, that they're eating unclean food? No. The charge is they're eating lechem with unwashed hands. That's the charge. Coming, stemming from the law, being prosecuted by a law that is not the Torah. Moving on to verse 6. He answered and said to them, this is Yeshua speaking to the Pharisees. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You know, words like this will get you stoned in Israel. I don't know if you're familiar with the Orthodox Jewish community. They take their traditions, dead seriously. They're not to be messed with. And here you have Yeshua coming out. You want to talk about rocking the boat. You want to talk about putting things in a historical context. These words will get you stoned. These coming against everything that, they're, that they knew, that they grew up with, that their father's father's father practiced. These things are to be imposed on our people. We're Jewish. We're to be separate. We're to adhere to these things. And yet Yeshua says, in vain you are worshiping me. You are teaching as doctrines. These are required, the commandments of men. You are placing your own thoughts and ideologies upon man. Now, I don't want to pick on Orthodox Judaism, uh, but I will say this in regard to Christianity. Christianity really looks at Orthodox Judaism in many ways as being so foolish and they're so blind. And I'm going to tell you, they're doing the exact same thing the Pharisees are doing. They are teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Instead of worshiping on Shabbat, what we've been commanded in the Torah, all throughout Scripture, it's even found in the New Testament over and over again. No, we have a higher elevation. We have a better way. We're going to move the day entirely. And we're going to sanctify Sunday. And we'll put the name of Jesus on it. It'll look good. It'll be appealing. 
The Christian community has done the same exact thing. All the distortions and all the perversions parallel. Talk about hypocritical. Moving on to verse 8. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. Washing up pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. He said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. You think about these statements, and I can't help but think about the church. You're rejecting the commandment of God for the sake of the commandments that have been imposed by the pastors. We can eat clean now. It doesn't matter. Eat whatever you want. You can worship every day is the Sabbath. It doesn't matter. We've lost our minds. These very words speak to the church today. Now, pay attention what Yeshua says here. All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And he who curses his father and mother, let him be put to death. But then he goes on to say, but you say. Did you catch that? Because Yeshua just made a clear distinction. Moses says this, but you say this. You want to pay attention to what Moses says. Because Yeshua uses it in a positive and correct light. Saying Moses correctly taught the law. Yeshua brought even a further, a greater understanding of it in his teaching. But he goes on, You say, if man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is a gift of, to God, then you no, longer need, uh, you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition which you have handed down, and many such things you do. Isn't it interesting that you, you look at this carefully? What they're doing appears to be good and right. It appears to be righteous, but it comes at a cost. And this comes into play when you're analyzing and asking the question, should Christians eat clean? Does it matter to God? This better come into play. This reality better come home. We want to fulfill the commandments of God. That's what we want to do. I don't want to be carried off by the traditions of men that compromise those commandments. Moving on to verse 14. When he had called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. But the things which come out of him, these are the things, or those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, I'm going to tell you, when, when Yeshua starts throwing the statement, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear, Yeshua is speaking in the Spirit. I mean, he always does. But he literally puts a pair of bookends on this statement. If you have ears to hear, let him hear. This is a highly spiritual declaration that he just made. And we're going to see evidence of this as we continue. Now, who is he surrounded by? He called the multitude to himself. Who are, they're Jews. They're Jewish people. He's surrounded by his own. When he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. So he moves from this crowd. He had called them. He declared this statement. This is what I'm getting at. Then he goes in private. And then who is he surrounded by? His Jewish disciples. Specifically, his own. And notice that his disciples asked him concerning the parable. Parable. That is the word used. In other words, 
his disciples knew there was more than meets the eye to the statement that he just made, and they didn't fully understand what he had said. It wasn't just a hyper-literal statement. There was more to it, and they knew it. It was parable-like. So Yeshua said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. Now here's that statement, and this is where they take you. Clearly, nothing that I put in my body can possibly defile me, only that which comes out of my body. Definitely worth spending time is to talk about Yeshua's statement of the things that he's saying defile that come out of the body. 100% agree with all of these things. The problem comes in is when you have people looking at thus purifying all foods and Yeshua saying nothing that can come inside can defile. They take that and start saying, well, clearly this is about pork, this is about dog and horse and all this other stuff. When no such thing is true, no such thing is possibly accurate because I want to say this. Even as we get further on into Acts post-Yeshua, we find the food laws reiterated. We find that it is abominable to eat things that are strangled or offered to idols. Are we saying that would be contradictory? If I say, well, that no, we can, we can eat food offered to idols. We can actually eat the blood. It doesn't matter. Let's eat the blood of clean animals even. doesn't allow for that because that's not Yeshua's intent. That's not what he is saying. Let's go on in verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a man... That defiles a man for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lawless uh, lewdness, and an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Now, I want to be clear. This is how the conversation ends. Conversation ends with this statement, at least as recorded in the book of Mark. However, Matthew records one little tidbit of information that is absolutely monumental, which I assure you, had Mark known, <laughs> if he had premeditated what the church would do to this, his writings, what he recorded, he would have said the same thing Matthew did. But the Lord left us a witness. And it's not about Mark being wrong and Matthew being right. They both tell the exact same story. There's just something that Matthew adds that is so critically important, he slaps the back end of the bookend up. And so if you, you, the front end is that statement of understanding that it's about bread and unwashed hands, then you have all the information that goes in between. Matthew does something very, very careful. He slaps a bookend up to keep everything in its proper place rather than falling all over the place. And you're going to see this. We go to Matthew. Same story. Do not... Do you not understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. Verse 19. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. The exact the way Mark recorded this exact statement, to eat with unwashed hand does not defile a man, he recorded as, thus he purified all foods. Or thus, Yeshua, Jesus, declared all foods clean. It's the same statement. 
made completely differently. And man, talk about throwing an anchor to protect the perversion of the gospel. Praise the Lord, this witness was left. But they'll never take you to Matthew. They will always take you to Mark 7. It's convenient. It's easy. Somehow, today, people have managed to completely disregard the sacred text, the holy text of the Bible. And, and we're not scared anymore. We're not scared to apply our own meaning to the text, to totally create a new meaning, to add meaning into the text. Sadly enough, gone are the days where one would go to Scripture to actually draw out the meaning. Now, we're going to it to read in the meaning of our heart, the dictates of our heart. We're reading it into the text. And it's a very, very scary thing to see happening. Because I'm going to tell you where it begins is it's at the pastors, it's at the teachers. The sheep learn from the men that are in the front. They see the example and they follow the examples. Too many people are sitting in the pews today, they're sitting in the chairs and they're just getting spoon-fed and nothing is getting filtered. They're not being Berean. We talk about being Berean, but no, look at the church today. Look at the things that they're doing. Embracing unclean food, change Shabbat, ignore the Jewish festivals, ignore the festivals of the living God. It's a complete disaster. It's a complete disaster. I think the following passage, which I'm really going to close with, really sheds light on the problem with our generation today. Why the things are the way they are. We're going to go back to Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 23. And the Lord, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say to her, You are a land, this is Israel, say to her, You are a land that is not cleansed or rained on in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst are like a roaring lion tearing the prey. It's interesting. It's, it actually mentions the prophets. Who do you think? It's mentioning the prophets of the Lord. They confess the name of the Lord. They confess to be authentic. But they're going out like a roaring lion. This is the exact terminology that Peter uses in his epistle. Regard to Satan. Exact same terminology. They're supposed to be representatives of holiness. And they're supposed to be speaking the word of the Lord. But they're perverting it. And when you pervert the, the word of the Lord, you're working on behalf of who? The Lord's adversary. And you become a roaring lion tearing the prey. They've devoured people. Meaning they're, they're, they're harvesting on the souls. This is talking about salvation. It's about the souls of people. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst going on. Her priest, the Kohanim, what was the job of the Kohanim? They were to teach the people. Malachi talks about the people are to seek the law from their mouth. They were to bring understanding and knowledge. Read Nehemiah 8, read Leviticus 10. That was their job. They're the teachers. They're supposed to be shepherding. The priests have violated my law and profaned my holy things. They have not distinguished between holy and unholy, nor have they made known the difference between the unclean and the clean. Does this sound familiar today? Are the preachers, teachers, pastors, rabbis, are they making the distinction, doing their job, teaching the holy word of God, making the distinction between holy and unholy? Because now we're told everything's holy. Doesn't matter. Everything's clean. It's not. And the word of the Lord tells me so. 
And if anybody's going to do their job as a teacher, as a servant of the Lord, they make the distinction and they encourage the people to do the same. Moving on. They have hidden their eyes from my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. I want you to consider the strength of these words. The name of the Lord is profaned when you do not make the distinction between clean and unclean and when you turn your eyes from his Shabbats. The very thing that is moving at exponential speed, if you will, at an exponential rate in the church today. The very things they are touting as blessed and glorious are the very things we're told profane the holy name of the Lord. We are living in scary times. <laughs> Amen. 27. Her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey. Isn't that interesting that Yeshua's used the exact same analogy? Oh yeah, regarding false prophets. They will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they will be what? Ravenous wolves. And what do wolves do? They tear the prey to shed blood, to destroy people, and to get dishonest gain. It's a total plundering. Her prophets plaster them with untempered mortar, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the Lord had not spoken. This is where it comes down. Are there people out there, pastors, preachers, teachers, out there saying, Thus says the Lord, you can eat whatever you want, go get your ham, Shabbat doesn't matter, don't need to keep all of those pesky laws in the Torah, you don't need to study it. It's antiquated, it's done away with. I'm telling you, the church is drowning in false prophets. And they're tearing the prey. They're destroying men's souls. We're going to close here. I want to add a disclaimer, obviously, to everything that I'm uh, presented today. Having said all this, again, I want to go back to something that I alluded to last week. I do not believe that even with pastors, I believe there are legitimate pastors out there right now that don't know, but they have conviction. And these pastors that when they hear truth, they move. When they get the conviction of the Holy Spirit, they move. Do not walk out of here and say, Daniel said every single pastor in the evangelical and Catholic priest, they're all going to hell and they're sending everyone else to hell. I'm just merely quoting to you the word and what the word says, but one thing I do know is that there are legitimate and authentic men in all denominations that have a heart for the Lord. The difference is this, is that when they hear truth, they grab it and they never let it go. That's the difference. Whereas what scares me is the pastors that refuse the truth would rather debate it and not hear it those are the ones that are sending people to hell. It's true. Let's bow our heads. Father God, we just we give you praise and glory for your truth, truth which we're not we don't deserve to know. And we certainly don't deserve the sacrifice of your son Yeshua. And so we give your son, Father, praise because we know you are glorified in your son. We lift up the name of Yeshua. We thank you for the sacrifice. Without the forgiveness of sins, there is no hope. Our hope rests in the Son of God. Our hope rests in the work, the redemptive work that you have done, Lord Yeshua, in obeying the Father. And now you're seated at the right hand. Today is about giving you glory. It's about the God of Israel being exalted above all the other gods 
out of our mouths. But may we live lives that are worthy of such a gospel. All these things that are happening in the world today, the world is so wicked. As I mentioned this morning, we have not, the world has not witnessed the kind of wickedness that is wreaking havoc on this earth since the time of Noah. We've not seen anything like this. It is so bad. Things are so out of control. This country is basking in wickedness. It is promoting wickedness. The country has completely turned its back on you, Lord. And I'm drawn to that prayer where your servants got together early on in the book of Acts. And there was persecution because of your name. And they got together and they prayed to speak with boldness. And the entire room quaked because of the Holy Spirit. And what happened? They were given boldness to speak the name of Yeshua in the face of adversity. We pray for that same boldness. In these dark and wicked times, I pray that we do not shrink back, that we don't cower, that we don't hide, but we stand up for righteousness, knowing that this life is not the end. We have eternity to look for. We have hope. We have redemption uh, through you, Lord Yeshua. Strengthen us through your Ruach HaKodesh. Protect us from being deceived. Because no one can know the things of God except the Spirit of God. We need your Ruach. We need to know what the things of God are. Protect us from ourselves, Lord, from, the, from the, the desires of our flesh, from the lust of our hearts that is so convincing to us. I pray that you just expose the darkness in our hearts, Lord. Bring us to a place of repentance. Bring us to a place where we can stand and make a difference, where we can shine the light of the gospel, where we can shine the light of Yeshua to the world, to be a light to the Jewish people and to be a light to the nations. We just pray these things in the mighty name of Yeshua. Amen.